I doubt if it takes much convincing for us to believe that we live in a broken world. A world of pain, struggle, a world of injustice, a world of heartache, a world of burden. All you have to do is pick up a newspaper, log on to an internet website, look around. And we see it all around us, this, this burden of the, of the brokenness of life and of the world. And the, the brokenness it infiltrates every part of our existence, every part of culture, every part of, of our lives, economically, physically, relationally, spiritually, ethically, morally, Every area of our existence is, is, is defined in many ways by brokenness. And sometimes it feels so overwhelming that I, I just want to say, let's everybody come to the church, we'll lock the doors, and we'll just stay here till Jesus comes back, right? And then we don't have to worry about it anymore. And we can just let all that stuff just, you know, just do what it does, and we'll just be safe in here, and we're good. Of course, that, I think that speaks to uh, a perspective of um, what's going to happen when, when Jesus reappears. Because as the scripture tells us, he's going to create a new heaven, a new earth, and, and he will redeem all of creation. As Paul says in Romans 8, all of creation is groaning for redemption. All that exists is waiting for that day when Jesus will reappear and he will bring in the kingdom in all of its glory. But until that day, we live with a whole lot of brokenness. And the calling of God's people is not to hibernate and to act as if we have no responsibility, but it is to be a part of it. To walk in to the messiness of this broken world and the struggles and the troubles and the pain and the difficulties. To walk into the middle of it and to be a presence of hope and of life and of flourishing and of grace. I think that this is one of the things that that is a part of of God creating us in his image. Of all the things that we see about the creation story, of course, the most important is that God is the one who creates. But maybe the next most important thing is that God creates human beings in his image. That we are, we reflect who he is, his nature. We reflect how he thinks and, and what he says and what he does and how he views things. And that as people created in the image of God, this is what we were created to do. And of course, sin corrupted that. And so rather than than bearing the image of God, we get so self-focused that we twist it and turn it, manipulate it. But that's still our calling. And I think the calling of the church is to be a presence to bear the image of Christ in this world in such a way that we make the world a better place, that we make the world a place of flourishing, that we bring hope in the midst of despair and light in darkness, 
And, and we have something to do, some little part to play to bring about an attitude of shalom in this world. That word that is often translated peace, but it's so much more than just peace. Well-being, security, completeness, welcome. There's so much involved in that, but all of it ultimately is in being a presence for good as we are a presence for God. This is really what I think God is saying to Abraham. He calls out Abraham and says, look, if you, if you will do what I'm asking of you, I will bless you. But it's not just to bless Abraham and that's the end point. But he says, I will bless you so that you will be a channel of blessing to every single nation and people on the earth. I'm going to work through you. You are going to embody who I am. And you're going to bear witness to who I am. And and you will bless everyone else. That calling is passed on to Israel. And they... Don't do a real good job of it. And ultimately, that calling comes in Jesus, who is the perfect image of God. As John tells us, the word in flesh, God in human form, perfectly images God because he is God. But that's not the end of it either. Because when we get to the end of the book of Matthew and Jesus has resurrected and he's about to ascend into heaven, he says to his disciples, now you go represent me. You go bear the image, uh, my image to the world. And you be the beacon of light and hope and faith and blessing and flourishing and shalom in this world. That's your calling. Unfortunately, we can all find examples of when the church maybe, maybe didn't, didn't bear that, that image as well as we should have. All you have to do is look through the history of the church, the history of God's people, and you see it repeated over and over again of God's people becoming self-absorbed, of God's people thinking more about what we can get rather than what we can give and how we can serve. But that's still our calling. The question is, how do we do that? How do we go about bearing the image of God in a way that creates this atmosphere of shalom and hope? Flourishing life. I was reading recently a book by uh, Bill Greenway. Bill grew up here in Houghton. Many of you who've been around a while would know him as Billy Greenway, but I'm pretty sure he goes by Bill now uh, as an adult. But uh, he, he grew up here, grew up in this church, and now he teaches at Austin Presbyterian Seminary. And he's written this book, For the Love of All Creatures. And it's, it's a great book about uh, creation and uh, God's love for creation. But he has a chapter in there that he specifically uh, sets apart to talk about what it means for God to say to Adam and Eve to, to go forth and to, to rule the earth and to subdue the earth and to tend the earth and to take care of the earth. What exactly does that mean? And he says there are two different perspectives that we've seen through history. One of them is the perspective of domination. Where we see the earth as simply existing for us. And we use it for our interest and for our gain. And, and it is a... It's a, it's a it's a, a perspective that says, I'm first, 
and I'm you, the earth is here purely to serve me. But the other perspective is the perspective of dominion. And the perspective of dominion is the sense of, yes, the earth is here to nourish us, but that's only because we nourish the earth. And we care for the earth, and and we love the earth, and, and we do everything we can to help the earth and everything in it, all of God's creation, to flourish. And when talking about the earth, he's not just talking about nature, about plants and animals and And all of those things, he is talking about that, but it's a bigger idea than that. It's about culture. It's about how we exist as a people and how we relate to each other and and the, the kinds of systems that we create. All of that is a part of what we're talking about, of how we view the God's creation. And our perspective makes a huge difference. Do we think that we, we dominate creation, and so that's been the history of the church for a lot, in a lot of times, where we've said, we want people to know God and to follow God, and so we will force them to do that. And we will, we will hammer this into them until they get it. And in fact, we're going to make laws that makes them do it. But of course, the reality is, forcing people into faith is just another form of oppression. What God is looking for is this mindset of nourishing, mindset of humility, a mindset of self-giving, self-sacrificing. I mean, isn't that the mindset of Jesus? There's all the power that exists, and then some. And yet, how does he come? How does he come to this world? How does he communicate who God is by being a little baby? And by hanging around outcasts and the people who are most vulnerable. And ultimately, by going to a cross. N.T. Wright says, any any Christ-shaped calling is always going to be a cross-shaped calling. And people who announce the good news are always people who embrace the cross. And that is how we influence the world. That's how we bring about healing and shalom, life, righteousness, blessing. Not by forcing it on the earth, not by forcing it on people, but by creating such an atmosphere that people feel loved and cared for. It's about humility, peace, grace. And that means that when we encounter people in need, we are much better off to do a lot more listening than talking. When we encounter people in need, we are a lot, we're a lot more productive by asking them about their lives instead of telling them about ours. With this perspective, our mindset is how can I serve you? Instead of how can I get you to do what I want? There is a a self-giving and a self-sacrifice. But at the same time, there is a perspective about the world that says, I need you as much as you need me. 
In our Western culture, to be humble typically means, let me just give you, let me give to you. But we often find it much harder to receive than to give. You think about the last time someone did something really nice for you. What was your first response? How can I pay them back? Right? Now, we say that when people do bad things to us as well. But when, we do, when, we, when people do nice things for us, you know, I, I, need, I don't want to owe them. I need to do something back for them. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what if our mindset was just to let people serve us? To let people love us? To let people give to us? Because we know how great it feels to do that. Let them experience that too. And when we think about the cultures of the world, how often do we approach those other cultures with a mindset of we've got all the answers. And if you just did what we think then your life would be perfect because we figured everything out. Instead of going to cultures and saying, so talk to me about how you see this. Talk to me about how you think about that. Because ultimately, our goal is not to convince people to think the way we think. Our goal is to introduce them to Jesus. And that means we are always looking for what will help them most readily hear and see what we have to communicate about Jesus. I remember Haddon Robinson talking to us many times in my preaching courses about a lot of things, but one of them that stuck in my mind was this idea that when you preach, you're thinking more about what people need to hear rather than what you want to say. It's not always the same thing. There are some times where I want to say some things, but I shouldn't. And there's sometimes where I want to say some things in a way that I want to say them, and I shouldn't. And it's not because they're wrong or they're untrue. It's just that they would be unproductive. Because when you say things a certain way, people put up walls. And if the goal is to try to get people to hear, you've created an atmosphere where people don't hear. We want to build bridges. That's what I love about Lilius Trotter. If you haven't read her biography, I would encourage you to do so. But she was a woman, a single woman in England in the second half of the 19th century who got a burden for the Muslims of North Africa. And just she and a friend just went to North Africa, didn't know any, didn't know um, Arabic, didn't know anything much about Islam. But they went, they wanted to, they loved these people. And they spent, she spent the next 50 years there serving them. And one of the things that she keeps repeating over and over again as you read about her life is she would ask people, so how, she's thinking to herself, how will these people hear what I'm trying to say? How will they interpret what I'm trying to say? And I want to say it in a way that they can hear and see Jesus. Viv Gregg was a 28-year-old single man from New Zealand who got a burden about the poor in the Philippines. And so he went, he moved to Manila, and he lived in in one of those huge um, slum-like areas of Manila. He rented a second-floor apartment, and he said the woman who lived below owned the building, and he described her as a hard-drinking, hard-living woman. And he he would uh, line up every day with everyone else with his bucket to get to the faucet, the one faucet for their whole area, and fill it up. They had to fill it up before 6 o'clock in the morning because at 6 o'clock the city shut down the water there so they could get water to all the wealthier areas the rest of the day. And so everybody lined up with their bucket of water, and he was in line with them. And the people would say to him, why are you here? 
He said, well, I'm here because I'm, I follow Jesus, who said he came to preach good news to the poor. And they looked at him with a lot of suspicion, but every day, there he was, out with his bucket, every day living his life with them, interacting with them, learning about them, until one day they're standing there and they say to him, so, when are you going to preach good news to us? He said, well, how about right now? And he sat down and he started to teach them about Jesus, and a church came out of that. It took a long time. It took a lot of patience. And you know, often, when you take the path of of dominion, when you take the path of humility, the, the path of, the, of Jesus that Paul describes in, in Philippians 2, about Jesus who had, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to grasp, but gave it up and became a servant, went to the cross. When you live with that kind of perspective, you don't always get to see the results that you want. Sometimes you just have to be faithful. Most of the time, you just have to be faithful. I was thinking about the people in Hebrews 11. We have this whole litany of saints who, have, who, who gave their lives for Jesus, for, for, for Jesus, and on and on, and for God. And, and you get to the end of that chapter, into that section, in chapter, verse 13, and he says, And all these people were faithful to God, but they didn't see the promise. None of them saw the promise. None of them got to see the end. None of them got to see these measurable results that we love. But they were faithful anyway because that was their calling. It makes me think about 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul's great, great uh, word about resurrection. And most of what we know about resurrection comes back to that passage. And, and this, this great description that, that Paul gives about the resurrection and the resurrected life and it gets to the end of it. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, grave, is your sting? You have the victory through the risen Christ. And then you get to the very last verse. And he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, keep on doing what you're doing. Keep on bearing the image of Christ. Why? Because nothing you do in the image of Christ is ever useless. Nothing you do in the image of Christ is ever useless. Useless. And that's our calling. It means being patient, not always seeing results, but just being faithful to bearing the image of God in a broken, hurting world in order to be people who create an atmosphere of hope and light and flourishing and healing. As the Spirit works. And that brings us to this table. This is a table of, of grace and gratitude. Every one of us, when we come to this table, we are recognizing that we don't deserve what God is offering us. We don't deserve what God has done for us. And that we have every reason in the world to be more grateful than we could possibly ever express. Because of God's goodness and grace to us. But it's also a place of celebration because we begin to see in this table not only what God has done for us, but the great joy and privilege God has given us to be people who bear his image. I mean, sometimes it feels like a burden as you walk into the middle of the mess of this world and of life 
and, it, and you see everything going on and you, and you watch what people are doing and all the decisions and, and the, the things that are happening in our country and around the world. And it's so overwhelming that it just feels like this thousand pound weight on our shoulders that is pushing us deeper and deeper down. But the reality of this table is that we remember this is not just about looking back, it's looking forward. And this is a table that reminds us, brings us straight into the to an awareness of the resurrection life. That Christ has won. That we follow the risen Savior. And that changes everything. And we come to this table celebrating that God has given us the amazing privilege to get to be people who help bring hope and healing and light and flourishing and shalom into this world. And instead of being a burden, even though sometimes it feels weighty, there is this great joy in that privilege. That God trusts us enough to give us this calling. That's a reason to celebrate. I was thinking back about the, the 20th chapter of John's gospel, where John tells the story of the resurrection, that first resurrection morning. And you know, all the gospels tell about the women coming to the tomb. But in John, he tells us that most of the women go back to the disciples to tell them what's happened. But Mary Magdalene stays there in the, around the tomb in the garden. And she sees Jesus, only she doesn't know it's Jesus. She thinks it's a gardener. Because obviously she's not expecting to see Jesus. And, and she says, she thinks he's the gardener. And, and of course, on, on the surface, obviously she's wrong. He's not the gardener, it's Jesus. But at the same time, maybe she's right. Maybe, as I was reading recently, what she... What, what God is trying to tell us, what John is trying to tell us, is that, in a sense, Jesus is the gardener. It's through his resurrection that now this world of despondency and despair and darkness has hope. And the one who is the gardener has called us to be little gardeners. To plant where we are seeds of life and hope and joy, and shalom, and flourishing in the Spirit of Christ. The image that comes to my mind is of a battlefield during World War I. I've done some reading about World War I. It seems as though a lot of the battlefields where most of the action was hand-to-hand combat between the foxholes, it would end up being just this huge field of mud and blood and bodies, destruction and death. Horrible scene. But I have in my mind, in the middle of that field, as you look out upon it, out there in the middle of all of that muck and mire, is a little daisy poked its head up, reaching for the sun. And it doesn't change the fact that that field is a place of death and brokenness and pain and suffering. 
But in the middle of it, there's hope, there's beauty, and there's life. That's our calling. Heavenly Father, thank you for your gracious mercy to us. You actually give us the privilege of being image bearers of your nature and your character. That we actually get to have a part to play in bringing to this world hope, flourishing, life, joy, shalom. Father, as we come to this table this morning, we pray that your anointing will rest upon the bread and the cup. Pour out your blessing as we eat and drink. That we might know the power of the risen Christ. And be people who share that light and life with others. We ask this through Jesus. Amen.